Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 On today's episode, we talk with Tom Cutler, who is a prosthetist, innovator, and researcher at Limitless LLC. We talk about how biomechanists and prosthetists can learn from each other and from that improve help to prosthetics users. And we also cover interesting work on the mechanics of the tensor fascia latte and the iliotibial band. Yeah, it was really cool to get Tom's perspective on a variety of topics. And he's super knowledgeable, and I really think we learned a lot. Yeah, I think it was the first prosthetist we had on Boom, so that was fun. And on the note of prosthetics, we will do a bit of Boom. 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 So the first bit of boom we have today is on the biomechanics of wearing high heels, which is a bit of a precursor to what we talk about with Tom and some surprises throughout the episode. There's been a lot of really interesting research on high heel wearing and how it changes muscle architecture and gait biomechanics. And I just found one article that I thought was interesting that came out a while ago. It was in the Journal of Biomechanics in August of 2013 called The Biomechanical Simulation of High-Heeled Shoe Donning and Walking by Jay Lu and colleagues. And in this paper, they used computational modeling based on finite element analysis to build a three-dimensional model of coupled foot-ankle shoe complex with a high-heeled shoe and evaluated a gait simulation. And so Similar to other studies, they found that during high-heeled walking, the joints experience different loading patterns, which based on my experience wearing heels makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) And they also found that the contact pressure at the metatarsophalangeal joints intensified and reached maximum at push-off phase during locomotion, with the first joint having the largest magnitude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could be it. Does your big toe always hurt? It does. The most? And it makes yeah. sense because one, that's like, I feel like the pointiest part of the shoe. And two, yeah. your foot just slides right down into that little point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they say the first and the fifth had the larger moments and then the transverse plane among all the joints, which again, and it says like that means they, they bended more significantly by toe box restraint. And like, similarly, I feel like those are the two joints that are, yeah, usually most painful. So it's interesting that they evaluated some of these parameters during high-heeled walking, but more than that, the methodologies they developed can be expanded to other footwear evaluations and I think show the promising potential of computational approaches for realistic biomechanical evaluations and hopefully optimizing footwear design in a virtual environment. And some of the parameters. Additionally, were like footwear fitting and donning, interfacial foot pressure during walking, joint contact pressure, movement, and bone stress. But it just like made me think of how cool it would be to have like a 3D model of my own foot. And then I can like virtually try on shoes and like 
see how they might impact like both like my foot structure and like mechanics, but also it'd be really cool if if you could see if they're going to like cause blisters or like have some like sheer forces at like certain areas of your foot and like figure out <laughs> if a shoe if you like shouldn't wear a certain type of shoe. <laughs> yeah, you can pick out the optimal high heels for the high heel runs that they do. Have you seen those like high heel five Ks? <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> Wow, but, that could revolutionize shoe fittings. Could you imagine like online shopping for shoes, but like having a rating for how it will like affect your biomechanics and comfort? Yeah, instead of filtering, you can like usually choose different filters, like filter by size. Instead of filtering mm-hmm. by your size, it'll be like filter by your personalized foot model. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. And it makes me think that that could be a great way to design really awesome high heels. Yeah, or other shoes. Speaking of fitting and having optimal shoes and footwear, it turns out that... You always um, have the best transitions. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like on to the next thing and you're like, I connect this in the most like fluid way. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. Thank you. I love when Melissa compliments my transitions. (laughs) Yeah, so so our next bit of boom has to do with actually animal prosthetics, which I just learned is actually a thing. So our first story is with Moshe the elephant, who lost her leg to a landmine at only seven months old. And at the time, she was about 1,300 pounds. And she was the first elephant to receive a functional prosthetic leg. So you can imagine designing a prosthesis for that large scale of an animal is really challenging. But not only that, she was only seven months old. She was growing. So they had to keep updating and molding new prosthetics as she grew to her full size of 4,400 pounds, which I just think is such an awesome design challenge and really great. That'd have to be a pretty robust prosthetic right to support <laughs> to support that although i think that when we were researching high heel biomechanics we saw that there's more pressure at the heel of a high heel per unit area than there is under that same unit of area under an elephant foot oh. which makes sense <laughs> yeah <laughs> despite the severe weight differences it's all about surface area i guess and distribution yeah, of true. that force but then one other kind of fun animal pros thesis story happened with Carl Zellick's lab at Vanderbilt. And he's been thinking about prosthetics for animals. And they actually had a project challenging themselves to design a low-cost prosthetic for a dog named Bogey, whose forearms on his front limbs were severely damaged, causing him to actually, he had to sort of shuffle around on his elbows. But the lab designed and prototyped, I know, a set of prostheses to protect his elbows that enabled him to walk more normally and with less pain and bruising than he had previously. And the cool thing was that they've actually shared their design and the fabrication details on their website at super low cost. And you can check it out at their site, at Carl's Bat Lab site at Vanderbilt. Super exciting. That's amazing. Well, first of all, Bogey is a really cute name for a dog. But also (laughs) that's just a really awesome 
project and it's always like heartwarming to apply biomechanics and like you're like having these new learnings from these projects but it's also nice to see them in different contexts Mm -hmm. like this but I feel like if you didn't know animal prosthetics were a thing then you didn't listen to my lecture in human movement when I talked about the alligator who had a prosthetic tail that was shooting from and I think I even talked about that in boom I think you did. I think you did. <laughs> I was realizing as I was saying, which I just learned about, I think I meant to say elephant prosthetics. <laughs> elephant, that makes sense. Elephant prosthetics specifically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that can be my research fail for today. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that was really fun. I liked learning about those animal prosthetics, and I'll have to look at the Felix Lab at, at Vanderbilt and their projects. Do you think there are any prosthetics or even just exoskeletons or assistive devices you could make for your cat, Melissa? Well, I take my cat on a walk. I don't know if I say cats. So it's just one cat. And I feel like a real hypocrite because I used to be like, who takes their cat on a walk? But now I do. <laughs> and it's actually really fun because you can like just put a harness on and like a leash like a dog and he loves going outside and like going for walks but the weird thing about it is when you put a harness on a cat they have this like sensitive patch on their back that like I guess when predators grab them they have this reaction to just kind of go limp you know how they kind of get picked up by the oh, back of their yes, neck by the name of their so when they have yes. a heart yeah exactly so when they have a harness on and it's in that same spot they like go limp so when you first put the harness on, they just like he just fall, he starts purring because he's really excited, but he also falls to the floor and like doesn't move for a minute, and then eventually like eventually it's okay. It's just like it's like sensitized, and we go. <laughs> it's just like five seconds of falling to the floor. That is amazing. <laughs> so maybe something that would help with that. But other than that, I think he's he's okay. Wow, that is amazing. All right. Well, should we go into the interview with Tom? Let's do it. Today, we're talking to Tom Cutler, who is a prosthetist, innovator, and researcher at Limitless LLC. Thanks for talking with us, Tom. Hey, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here. (laughs) We love to start off the podcast by asking what first got you interested in your work? So we're wondering what brought you to your passion, your interest in prosthetics and orthotics. It's interesting. I was actually doing earth science at the time. I was working in geology when it was actually a call from my mom. She'd known that I wasn't real happy. I mean, dealing with rocks or dealing with people. So I get this call. (laughs) Tommy, I've got the perfect job. And I'm like, but she's a muralist and she was painting at a friend's house. She goes, hmm. one of our friends, he makes paralyzed people walk. Now, she left out a couple of details. You know, I'm thinking she wants me to be a televangelist, like a faith healer. I'm going, mom, what, what do you mean? And, <laughs> and I was always the person in the family from the age of five that if something had to be put together, I was the one that was tasked with doing that because anybody else in the family would basically break whatever showed up. So, <laughs> so you were a builder. Oh yeah. And so prosthetics was where I first felt 
like I found my place and found my tribe. And so that's when I knew I found a home and have loved it for the past 24 years. That's amazing. It must have been just a really great feeling to feel like you finally found a place where you fit and felt Mm -hmm. like the work was really aligned with who you are and also helping people too. I think that resonates with, with us a lot. I think a lot of people gradually get closer to where they belong. And I feel bad that I'm not one of these people that at 10 years old, I had my life all planned out. I think that it's like a, a rudder. The boat has to be moving in order to actually get that direction. That's so true because uh, a lot of time people want to like plan out perfectly. It's like before I even get in the boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I, I'm right there with you on that. It's a journey. How can biomechanics listeners who maybe don't have prosthetic experience better understand what the connection is between these fields of biomechanics and prosthetics and orthotics? That's a terrific way to start because people just go, what in the world? It turns <laughs> out that in prosthetics and in orthotics or O&P, P&O, whatever, we actually build wearable free body diagrams. Everything you guys are doing on the screen and interpreting, I get to actually kinesthetically, I get to manipulate that. And, and then when dealing with the patient, we get to do the fitting and optimizing this free body diagram with an immediate feedback loop with the patient there. Hmm. So that's why... With the people in biomechanics, we provide that immediate feedback that would be so helpful in guiding and adjusting our pathway forward. What kind of feedback do you get from patients when you're trying them or fitting them with a prosthetic? (laughs) (laughs) And there's a couple of it. One is gravity. If they're going to fall, they're going to just go. Yeah. (laughs) Another one is if you put them into a socket and let's say the socket causes a problem, there's nobody else in line to be blamed for that besides me. I might, you have to fix it. Hmm. But it also, the way we notice if our patients, the weakness and all of those things, that's what we find a lot of times is when patients are struggling or when patients change we're the only person in charge of the prosthesis. So when the Mm -hmm. prosthesis seems like it's suddenly too long and they they complain it's too long, I'm like, well, you worked out your contracture of your knee. You're standing taller on that side. Your leg isn't too long. You changed. Mm -hmm. And we oftentimes never recognize that. If a surgeon, for example, says, I want to, I've had this many times. I want to provide cushion. So they leave a lot of tissue. And I said, great, you just left a reservoir for volume fluctuation. And I've had patients drop down an entire inch within their socket. Wow. Because the tissue would grow. See, we focus on Wolf's Law, but nobody even knows that there's Davis's Law also the equivalent for soft tissue. 
if you don't stretch your tendons and ligaments, it only takes two weeks to develop a functionally limiting contracture. And that changes the entire alignment. So a patient gets pneumonia and suddenly nothing works. Then they'll come back and say, you did this to me. (laughs) So there's a lot of education. I shadowed someone who works at as prosopis a long time ago, a few, quite a few years ago. But what I remember the most from that day is just one, like how rewarding it, it was to actually work directly with people, but then also how challenging it is to work directly with people. There was like this whole spectrum of people who came in and were like so happy with their prosthetic. And then I remember, I remember one woman came in and she had just a whole like grocery list of everything. (laughs) And she had just had everything documented for my friend to fix when she came in for her, you know, in her half hour. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking this is in one of those movies where somebody barges into the room, points the finger and goes, you did this. Right. (laughs) Did you know, here's the interesting part that, Every patient experiences naturally occurring sarcopenia. So when a patient has a problem with a prosthesis, I mean, it's funny that, I don't know if you knew, did you know that patients have naturally occurring sarcopenia of 40 to 60% for any resected muscle after amputation? So the fit completely changes and a lot of times if the patients and the amputees aren't aware they don't know how to engage and address that Mm, wow patients run into problems because their bodies are dynamic and changing Mm -hmm. but this isn't yeah you can really see how the like biomechanics becomes so translated to the real human experience and what you do. It's funny that there's a force coupling relationship between the limb and the socket. That's the difference between backing up a car and backing up a car like with a boat trailer attached. Do you understand how how when you have two things, one fitting inside the other? Mm-hmm. So if you have your initial contact, you get a knee flexion moment, but that's only in the prosthesis. You actually have the prosthesis will have a knee flexion moment, but the patient will react to that with knee extension. And so there's this inversion, like a bell clapper that happens inside the socket that a lot of people aren't aware of that difference. Oh, I see. Like if you're almost if you're breaking with the boat trailer, is that the analogy you were kind of going with? Either way, I guess moving, pulling on it or when you have the calf muscle that that shrinks in the back, and when you land on it and have a knee flexion and the leg pitches forward, your knee extension causes you to hit the end of the tibia bone. Causing the pain in the front, even though the problem's in the back. So when it gets loose, it rattles around. We assume that everything is as we've experienced it. And in prosthetics and orthotics, we experience the hip in isolation. 
without anything else attached to it. You remove the IT band, you remove the knee, the ankle. I had a physical therapist working on these step ups and he's working while I'm working the quads and the glutes. I said, you're not working the quads. He goes, yes, I am. I'm like, well, you don't have a knee. And he had forgot my patient. He experienced a very different type of biomechanics than everybody else. And I don't think that the biomechanics world has discovered that. (laughs) You see what I mean? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. What do you think needs to happen to better inform, I guess, biomechanists or prosthetics or kind of like close that gap a little bit? I think we need to recognize the philosophical understanding and the historical understanding of biomechanics. Newton never said that it was equal and opposite and identical, right? So if you have a foot with a muscle, it doesn't push against somebody else's foot pushing back at you. Your ground reaction forces are that of a mechanism. So the ankle actually has two different lever classes working simultaneously, but our current approach to inverse dynamics mirrors it back as though your class two lever for the ankle is working against a class two lever. But a prosthetic foot, if you flip it upside down, you actually have a heel lever and a toe lever and the ankle is the fulcrum. I went back because everybody talks about rockers. And so I I went back to understand the philosophy of it. And so the quote that I like from Einstein says, a knowledge of the historic and philosophical background gives independence from prejudices from which most scientists are suffering. This independence created by philosophical insight is the market distinction between a specialist and a, and a real seeker after truth. So Jacqueline Perry used a literary term for a rocker. She said it serves as a rocker, but there's no mathematical expression for a rocker. It turns out the ankle has, I tend to call it divergent reactive leverage. So as you move forward, in late stance, you actually end up with this long moment arm. And that moment arm is actually the source of the missing ankle power. Carl Zellick did some great research. 2015 had an article that that admits right there on figure one, we don't know where 33% of ankle power comes from. And we talk about push off and we talk about rockers. But rather than push off prosthetics and the reactive biomechanics says, hey, it's actually this long diving board. It's this Mm -hmm. moment arm that actually gives us that power. And in late stance, it actually explains, gives a different role to the gastrocnemius. Mm -hmm. And so it's a chain reaction that works its way up and allows us to better understand our inverse dynamics and then go from there. That's a nice example of like a handoff, like in learnings between prosthetics and biomechanics, right? We 
think of a lot of biomechanics, maybe just informing prosthetics. But I think, like you're saying, maybe there are things in prosthetics that might actually help us solve some of the mysteries in biomechanics. So I think it would be great to act. It seems like it's something of a monologue. When we have the theory practice gap, we have our evidence-based mm-hmm. medicine, evidence-based practices, right? I don't know if, if you're familiar with Brene Brown yeah. and her work. We love oh, Brene yeah. Brown. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why her stuff is so good, and I wish I, I don't know if this is my approach, but she has something called grounded theory research methods. It's where you take what you know and then take that truth all the way back to the theory and say, okay, how does this affect our theory? So you have your quantitative works one direction in the theory practice gap, but your qualitative research allows that feedback that then your next research project. Mm -hmm. I think it's a dialogue. I think there's a ton that people could learn from prosthetics. So that's where we get into tensor fasciolata and the IT band and that stuff, but there's a lot there. Well, the tensor fasciolata, the TFL and the iliotibial band or the IT band, maybe we can kind of dive into that a little bit more and like why maybe you became so interested in studying the TFL and the IT band. It seems like you're getting some hints of that with your answer, but maybe some <laughs> more background on um, what made it motivated your research to go in that direction. Sure. Very simple. It was January <laughs> of 2015. I'd been doing clinical for 15, 17 years, whatever. And I decided to write an article. And that was when I discovered that every one of my amputees had the IT band surgically removed during amputation. I mean, why are you taking this away? So I would say, if you're in the middle of gathering data on a research project, you're in the lab. Mm -hmm. Somebody walks in, walks up, grabs a box of your supplies and walks out, they take it. You'd be interested in knowing, hey, wait, I need to know if there's anything in that box I need. The more I dug, the more fascinating it was. I was shocked at how little we know. I guess I'm just curious why the IT band is removed. Is it just because its attachment point is lower than where their leg is being amputated? Do you know why or do you have like a sure. theory as to why? <laughs> or they just want to free up some space in there. Yeah, <laughs> it's just easier. So... It turns out that the Mayo Clinic did a study. Every amputee on the amputated side has 30% less hip abduction power than their sound limb. Hmm. And I was like, then I went and I, I went digging deeper and I found somebody that challenged Paul Wells biomechanics. And back then it states that in Cummers 1993, that 30% of hip abduction has to happen through the IT band. Our model of the hip looks at the pelvis as a teeter-totter that balances on the femoral head, right? 
It's mm-hmm. body weight on one side and muscle tension on the other. And what I found by getting into the textbooks and digging in is they say, well, you're only supposed to look at it in anatomical position in the vertical. The hip also, if you rotate at 90 degrees and do a snow angel, mm-hmm. the fulcrum on the femoral lever is a class three lever. Mm. So you have this vertical. And I said, guys, my patients have a huge horizontal component. Mm. Where is it in model? And it wasn't there. Their model itself actually shows abductor tension that attaches to the trochanter. I say, your force can't attach to your trochanter because that's the femur. And if your fulcrum is over here as the femoral head, you can't have a second one that's invisible that's a femur. If they attach, then one of your forces is touching the fulcrum, and that violates Archimedes' law of the lever if you don't recognize two levers. But I'm not even talking about the IT band. And the moment arms that we deal with, I was talking with the patent office about my implant. And I said, well, you wedge it in and between the IT band and the muscle, the IT band is the third mechanism that rounds off our understanding of the hip. Your vertical forces act on the pelvis. Mm-hmm. Your horizontal forces act on the femur, but the IT band forms part of a heterogeneous wedge that cancels that out. So what I'm getting at is in engineering, we have six simple machines, levers, wedges, wheel and pulley, right? So we've got all of these simple Mm -hmm. machines that we have to choose from. I think we've gotten stuck on levers. So when you look at tensor fascia lata, there's so many different elements. Tensor fascia lata is actually functions as a wedge. It doesn't have a moment arm. If you have plywood, if you, you ask about fascia, the term fascia means a band or strap. So it's like rope. And you have this like rope that's tying down plywood in the back of a truck. If you get a block of wood and wedge it in, you create bi-directional mechanical advantage. Not only do you separate the rope vertically, but you have horizontal tension. Your vastus lateralis is what separates IT band from your femur. Vastus lateralis is the wedge that ties everything together that makes like like air inflating a tire yeah are you with me yeah i guess i'm thinking like you have your femur and then you have your muscle surrounding it and then you have the it band or the tfl like on the outside of that so it's like creating this gap between the bands and the and the femur right almost like a sesamoid muscle what does sesamoid mean you've got a sesamoid your bones so your your patella is your largest sesamoid bone in your body oh i see like it's free sort of free floating you could imagine right a homogeneous wedge is splitting wood a heterogeneous wedge is like tightening rope holding plywood on a trailer 
Do you see the difference? Oh, yeah. So this has mechanical advantage remains in one plane. Yeah. A wedge shape is necessary. The mechanism is focused on splitting apart. Your substance being split is of homogeneous characteristics. That's splitting up wood. Yeah. So this is a wedge, just so people maybe to describe it, a wedge inserted into a slot in a piece of wood. So your heterogeneous wedge is between a rigid and flexible element. Mechanical advantage rotates 90 degrees, so it creates more vertical tension. And you have bi-directional mechanical advantage. So when you look at this, our current model looks at your vertical forces. Turns out you have vertical forces as a class one lever. Your femoral, your snow angel abduction is a class three lever. And right in here in between, you have the IT band that is abducting. 30% of hip abduction happens below the knee. Hmm. So that means that 30% of our hip joint is below the knee. And it's done because your vastus lateralis connects the hip and knee synergistically in like a, a coronal kinetic chain. This is and really interesting. I think... Yeah, just adding more, I don't know, I guess thinking so mechanically about the body, but also using simple, more simple machines than just a lever to really give, I guess, higher fidelity in terms of what's happening inside of the body. You know, here's the crazy part. I went back and spent 12 hours looking for somebody to demonstrate that there are two classes of wedges. I can't find a heterogeneous wedge anywhere, only homogeneous. Now, here's our question then. We lose muscle as we age, right? How much do we lose? Any idea? 20%. By our 60s, we've lost 50% muscle mass. Holy cow. If this is inflating the tire or this is creating the tension so that the IT band can hold the hip and the knee together. You're saying the vasti. The vasti is the, losing the, this volume. Vastus, specifically vastus, vastus lateralis. lateralis. Sorry. 20, yeah, well, it's just, it's, it's the one that happens to do that. And I'm sure that once we look at the structural roles of other muscles, this is just sort of the first step. So when you, when you look at this synergy that this creates, when you lose this and this thins out, being 26 millimeters thick, now it's half an inch instead of over an inch. That right there is where what I believe is one of the major contributing factors to osteoarthritis of the hip and the knee because this is the key for all of it. And if you look at the kinesiology textbook, they don't label the IT band a single time in any of the illustrations on the hip, because I don't think we've ever been provided with this concept of a heterogeneous wedge, or if it's not that, then what is it? And I've reached out to the National Academy of Engineering going, look, if this isn't a wedge, can you please tell me what it is? And we've never had that tool. So then, now that we've seen how IT band sort of works, what does it do? Now, if you want to know its function, 
you have to pick one, flat terrain or hills. Pick one for me, I'll, and I'll tell you the, the let's just Let's just maybe start sim- more simple with flat terrain, if that is more simple, I don't know. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Sounds good on, to me. On flat terrain, you've engaged tensor fasciolata and is actually your primary hip abductor supporting body weight in gait. Now, you can still use your lesser glutes, but tensor fasciolata is actually primary. That was one of the surprising things that I found from some of the research. It's very clear why you thought this is very interesting, though. And I think, yeah, I think people hearing this will be more interested in, in both like the IT band, but also like possibly how other systems in the body are working with with simple machines. I am still curious to like bring it back about why it is removed in amputation. Now that you see that with the IT band holding the femur in check, Mm-hmm. And you have this synergy, kind of like noise-canceling technology below the pelvis, where the femur wants to abduct like a snow angel, and the IT band is holding it in place, mm-hmm. that once you amputate through, while you still have the femur, albeit with a shorter moment arm, the IT band is gone, and this huge femoral abduction manifested and because the surgeons were unaware of all three mechanisms working together in concert at the hip they simply saw this big femoral abduction and said quick make it go away when they made it go away i say why are you taking away abduction the reason they're taking away abduction is because they weren't fully aware of all of the structures that act at the hip. That changed my life. That's so interesting. Now you're developing a surgical implant for the IT band based on, well, both like your knowledge about this, but then you're also interacting with surgeons. And I guess generally what's been really exciting about designing a surgical implant and then also like what's challenging about it and working with, with surgeons. What has been exciting has been discovering that I'm wrong. We can never make a discovery without discovering that we didn't know the truth before that, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So I want to be wrong way before anybody else finds (laughs) out that I was wrong. If you find out you're wrong, then you can find out what you can do with what you discovered yeah so that's why when i discovered that there were no horizontal forces in the hip model when there's actually two canceling machines dealing with horizontal hip forces a friend said well tom who's going to make money off of this i go oh my gosh and so I, (laughs) i started working on some patents and then suddenly i can't publish anything. You got to shut your mouth because you've just made these discoveries. You really can't go spill the beans to the world or people will just simply outdistance you. Now that those patents are getting close and now that we've found so many things, mm-hmm. I have a hip implant 
that optimizes the femur for 51% more hip power acceleration from heel strike to mid stance. Wow. And yet nobody really has a major role for the femur when we're discussing how the hip joint works. It's simply the fulcrum. It's passive. It sits there. Hmm. You know, I mean, this, you see this right here. She's, that's, that's hip abduction. That's all femur right. moving in the pelvis. If you turn it sideways. Right. And so there's so much more. So when you were talking about function, Melissa, going back to it mm-hmm. and science, I think we forget that science is merely the process. And there was a, a physicist that says, Hey, before all of the calculations and deductions and meticulous measurements, science is above all about vision. Scientific thought is fed by the ability to see things differently than they've previously been seen. And so then you take the scientific process. I think we've never looked at the joints sideways or take the ankle and study it upside down. I don't think we've ever brought in this thought of what about a wedge instead of a moment arm for the tensor fascia lot in the IT band? Yeah, I wouldn't think to even ask those questions, but the way you're framing it and kind of just turning these quite literally upside down is so interesting. And I think it will kind of expand the types of questions we ask and the way we think about things. So I really appreciate you sharing that perspective. Yeah. And it really, like what you said earlier about um, sort of closing this loop and also thinking about things like philosophically, I like that you brought that in. It gets you to take these different perspectives and think about the practicalities and how they feed back. And we really appreciate on Boom, you saying that an exciting thing is being wrong and learning that you're wrong. Because as you know, we love to talk about research fails on the show. So we were were wondering (laughs) if you have any research fails that you're willing to share with us or maybe that you already have shared with us and we just aren't aware of. (laughs) So so when I tell people, yeah, I do clinical and a little bit of other stuff and they go, what do you mean other stuff? And I look at it, go, oh boy, it's about not staying in your lane. When you find and take your skill set outside and then follow it, so I did send something over. And <laughs> this I, is the first time this has ever happened on the podcast, to be clear. We yes. received packages in the mail from Tom. Well, it, <laughs> I, I had just finished working with a transtibial amputee. He's the world's strongman champion. Wow. And six foot eight. 330 pounds, rock solid. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And a friend of mine, I said, let's go walk three blocks to get coffee. She goes, I can't. I go, why not? She goes, my shoes are killing me. Now I'm thinking, well, if I can fix my buddy, Chad, I can fix your heels. She took her heels off, handed them to me and said, okay, do it. Go ahead and open them. <laughs> All right. We're opening, we're opening our packages. Uh-huh. On happening on boom. On a challenge. I hope it's a pair of heels. It's better. 
flat heels. <laughs> better. I have paper. Uh -huh. Can I open the paper? Sure, go so ahead. Prototypes. Whoa. So, my friend said, if you can make an amputee comfortable in a socket, why can't you make my shoes comfortable? Whoa. And yeah, maybe you can, you're getting to this to explain this, but it looks like little wedges that we put on our heels to make it more comfortable. I'll have to like take a picture of this and attach we'll it, it to the yeah. podcast. Yeah. So what happened when people say, so what else do you do? I said, well, so a friend of mine challenged me to pull this off. And in clinical mode, I looked at her high heels and oh. they looked like a black diamond ski slope. <laughs> now, if you take your standard approach, I realized it's not about arches, it's about flippage. So I looked at it and, and here's the thing that, you know, and I love stealing from the playbook of the smart kid in class. That's Albert Einstein, all right? And <laughs> talks about combinatory play, about unique juxtapositions. So as I'm looking at this shoe where it slides down, my patients slide down and bottom out in their sockets if they lose volume. Huh. So I thought, mm. if I'm on a ski slope and somebody gives me a shovel, I'll shovel a flat spot and I'm fine. And that's what <laughs> that is. And now here's where you get into these fails is my first one that I ever did and my friend, my friend, Laura said, Tom, it's too thick. And I'm like, no, it has to be that thick. She goes, no, it's, it's too <laughs> And you're thick. like, I know about women's heels. I know how to do <laughs> that. And I just started, that was that, I had no awareness until I realized that I'm acting like this specialist in high heels. Like, <laughs> I'm not. And it was that moment that this pivot and I, everything has been feedback. Well, take and try walking in her shoes for a day, literally, her high heels. <laughs> if I had continued to argue that I knew, if I had this lack of self-awareness, I think that is the origin of a lot of our fails. We don't have this awareness that allows us to learn. And in fact, one of my friends that was giving me feedback on the prototypes for these high heels and their Shark Tank called me two years ago. I mean, it's been a, such a <laughs> yeah, wow. awesome. I didn't have the intellectual property. The patent wasn't, hadn't been granted. So I, I said, thanks, send in a fun little video just to practice, but I, I couldn't go on. One of my friends was using these prototypes and said, well, Tom, I was at a party, wore some heels. I had a knee issue and my knee issue went bad. And I was like, wait, what? It went from, it went from a low to acute. And I said, wait, so what does that mean? And from that experience, doing something totally different, combinatory play, that juxtaposition. I said, there's something that happens at the knee when you plantar flex the foot. 
and it teaches us that that role at the gastroc that we learn about when we have both perspectives of the ankle, the gastroc now has all of this power to hold the back of the knee together and prevent recurvatum in late stance. And I checked it and we lose, our gastroc goes slack at 27 degrees plantar flexion, but you can get all the way to 49 degrees with your soleus. Interesting. Yeah. So we have these two completely different roles and we don't realize that we totally lose gastroc when you bend the knee 15 degrees. So that vision, I'm hiking out of the mountains behind a friend of mine. And I was looking because you always analyze gait as a prosthetist. I was looking at her and her gastrocs and whatever, and I was waiting for her leg to straighten up for gastroc. It never did. Tensor fasciolata has zero function on hills and stairs. Gastroc doesn't function on inclined terrain and stairs. There's actually, instead of one gait paradigm, we have our glutes and soleus are the only ones that are able to function on the hills. But when you get into flat terrain, it creates this spectrum between glutes and tensor fasciolata at the hip. And your soleus and gastroc at the ankle. And in fact, that explains a 2019 study that came out of your lab. Remember that exotendon, that elastic strut? And do you remember how it shortened the stride Mm -hmm. and it had so much increased efficiency that they couldn't explain it just in swing phase? Mm -hmm. If you look at that. So now I'm coming in going, there's actually two complementary choices. Whereas Jacqueline Perry from 40 years ago, there was actually research that happened before Scott Delp was around, I guess. We forget. <laughs> That's true. In the 40s and 50s, right? <laughs> Back then, they said one gate paradigm. Turns out there's two. One for flat terrain, one for incline. And on the flat, on the flat terrain, you can use both but you shorten your stride. You use mostly tensor fasciolata and they find that in the research. So now we have more ways to explain the challenges that come up in our research. So my patent that I patented was the world's first functional silicone surgical implant. Wow. It actually restores the volume. It's adjustable, but it restores the volume of your vastus lateralis to tighten the rigging so we actually get that synergy, that interplay. Wow, and that really brings together all the things that we've talked about, right? The understanding, the using and questioning what's going on, not having the right models or ways to like address this, looking in the literature saying, hey, we're, nobody's talking about this system in the way that I need them to. And then, so you have to figure that out. And then you also, then you come full circle and make the solution. And I just think that's just such a beautiful story. And 
really full of lots of different challenges and surprises and things along the way. And I just think, yeah, I love your embracing of, of failure and embracing of being wrong. Um, the last one I want to tell you that applies to Parkinson's. And I know we have some, you know, I go on, but <laughs> a friend was cerebral palsy crouch gait. And I found out that a gastroc contracture is actually the cause. And by giving him heel lifts, he stood up straight. And he was able to walk across campus. That's amazing. Without having to sit and rest. And so if you have a Parkinson's patient and we notice that they have bent hips and knees, if they bend it more than 15 degrees at the hip and at the knee, they've lost 30% of their hip abduction power on flat terrain. And then the answer is a pair of high heels or a pair of cowboy boots. Interesting, yeah. We never control for heel rise in a lot of our studies. And so there's these little pieces of the puzzle that come from prosthetics that can really round out what biomechanics can accomplish. And it came from amputees. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I think I love thinking about how you can integrate learnings from certain fields or areas into other areas to just, yeah, just benefit and and push science forward and, and help people. So these are all really exciting. We really appreciate you talking about all of this with us. And we usually end on asking, what are you most excited about for the future? And I know we don't have too much time left, but maybe in just like a sentence or two, what are you most excited about for the future of of prosthetics? I guess it's what I'm most hopeful for is that we can actually look to the past to find out how we can move forward. I think we push forward and don't realize that sometimes the first step forward is actually a step back to look where we might have made a misstep historically that we need to correct. Yeah, that's, I love your answer to the future is to look to the past. (laughs) I love it. Biomechanics has a great opportunity if they incorporate the reactive side of biomechanics Mm -hmm. can really provide us the translatory discoveries that really can impact and give us answers for clinical situations. If I can just give my patients back their IT band and weight bearing, Mm -hmm. then I could give them back another 40% power. Mm -hmm. And um, I think they would do a lot better. And I, I think we could all learn from these people. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing your experiences with us. This has been a great and exciting conversation. Well, thank you very much. Glad to throw it out there. And like I said, we really need to let the band play, right? (laughs) The IT band. (laughs) That was such a great interview and covered really a wide range of things there. But now we'd like to transition to our favorite part of Boom, or sorry, one of our favorite parts of Boom, which is research fails. And I already did my research fail earlier during our bit of boom, so (laughs) (laughs) Melissa's going to share one now. (laughs) 
which one to share. Well, I had a, an embarrassing one a few weeks ago. I was doing this program called Hacking for Recovery, which was this like week long program kind of through the business school, I think, where you go through the steps of what it would be like to like have do a startup. And it was focused on things that can help with COVID. So it was a really cool experience. And in it, like any like starting a business or idea, you have to email a lot of people or just try to contact a lot of people to interview them, right, about your idea. And so I was sending out just like mass amounts of emails and like LinkedIn messages and stuff to just like try to talk to people and do empathizing. And I made a template email so I could just like easily copy and paste it. But in it, I said like, in brackets, I put like name of company where it would be like, hi, so-and-so, like I saw that you worked at this place and like did this. <laughs> and I started copying and like sending it to like all these people. And I like left it as like name of work in brackets. And then I realized I was doing that and I was just so embarrassed. <laughs> Wow. Anyway, at least I it wasn't didn't get like, many responses. <laughs> <laughs> at least it wasn't like I've heard that some people like write like kind of funny, sassy re- like comments back to their reviewers, like sort of to kind of get all their steam, like blow off all their steam, and then they like sort of reformat them into like nice comments. So at least it wasn't really like, anything mean. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I haven't heard of that before. Yeah, I've heard it as a strategy if you are annoyed with or frustrated with a review that that's that's something to do, but you don't want to do it in anything that can be sent. <laughs> right, right. For sure. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, well, it wasn't anything like that. It was just like clearly a generic email that I was yeah. It's embarrassing. I mean, I've definitely had those sent to me before, and now I'm just paying it forward, I guess. <laughs> that and, like, the reply all is a pretty common flub. Like, when you mean to just oh, reply yeah. one thing on the listserv, and then you just accidentally reply all. Oh, yeah. Done that before. Well, thank you for sharing that, fail. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Thank you, insert name of boom host. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you for listening. Thank everyone for listening to this episode of Boom. Thank you to our sponsor, the International Society of Biomechanics. And big thank you to Peter Washington, who does all of our music and sounds for these episodes. Yes. And as always, you can submit your research fails. You can submit ideas for people to interview. You can get involved either in an episode of Boom or the Student Voices series by emailing us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. Or you can follow us at Twitter at biomechanicsoom. Do it. All right. Well, I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics off our minds. minds.